This is MIT Technology Review. From the cornfields of Iowa to outer space, scientists are building a world where plants and machines communicate their needs with us and each other in real time. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. We're inside an experimental tractor on a test farm that belongs to John Deere. So we're sitting in a 8RX tractor, 410 horsepower. This machine we're in is loaded with tech. It has self-driving capability. Joe Liefer is the senior product manager of Autonomy. This machine also has the capability to run full infield autonomy. Just through the click of a button here on this lever, right, I can change ultimately the ground speed that we're running at. It can run in straight rows or curved ones, stay within the boundaries of a field, and knows where it should place seats. So you've got a fair number of sensors, cameras. Absolutely, yeah. It's equipped with six stereo camera pairs, three on the front of the tractor, three around the back of the cab. We have two NVIDIA Jetson GPUs that are classifying the world around us as we run in full autonomy mode. So we just came to a stop, and I'm going to power down the tractor here now. In some ways, AI has arrived at scale on the farm. A majority of farmers now use sensors and digital technologies that collect data, and most tools that analyze that data also use AI. But it's still early days for other forms, including machine vision. I imagine a world within the next 10 years where all of these vehicles literally have eyes and maybe ears, and those eyes and ears, those cameras, those sensors are powered by machine learning models that are helping them make better decisions. And researchers are creating plants that act as living sensors as well, containing code that allows them to share information with machines in the field, and satellites too. As you can see here, there are three tomato plants. Can you tell the difference between any of them right now? No. Okay, no. yeah, so one of these plants is unengineered. One is engineered with a yellow fluorescent signal and the other one with a green. So by eye, you don't see any difference. But the fluorescence is there. I'm Jennifer Strong, and this is part two of a series exploring the intersection of agriculture, automation, and satellites. Hmm. Let's go. In Machines We Trust. I'm listening. A podcast about the automation of everything. You have reached your destination. Walk around a little bit? Yeah, let's walk around a little bit. This, I would argue, is one of the most sophisticated vehicles, not just in agriculture, but in the world. Julian Sanchez is the head of emerging technology at John Deere. And what he's pointing at is a massive agricultural machine called a combine. It goes through a cornfield and it basically chops down an entire plant. And the magic that happens inside is it basically separates the rest of the plant from each individual kernel. And then it gets stored and it gets transported away from the combine so that it can be sent to wherever it needs to go next. Some of the magic he's talking about is actually machine learning. Cameras watch as those kernels are separated and algorithms gauge the quality. It's tech, he says, that's been around for the past five years. It's looking for 
is the machine being a little bit too rough on the inside and damaging the kernels. And if it is, it begins to make adjustments to its mechanical systems. And that's what you'll see back here. The, all these mechanisms are meant to just distribute all of that residue in an even fashion. Because another job of the combine is to get the ground ready for next year. So by evenly distributing all the residue, that becomes essentially fertilizer for next year's crop. And all of this is done without the vehicle ever stopping. And then this big tube, this big auger above us, folds out basically 90 degrees perpendicular to the vehicle. And then a tractor pulls up next to it with another wagon. And then the grain that is stored here is transported from the machine through that auger to another vehicle pulling a wagon. Looks like cameras or sensors up on the arm oh, as well. Oh, yes. One of the pain points of farmers in the past was from the cab of this vehicle, from the operator station of this vehicle, it's sometimes hard to see because the tractor may be far away and it's dusty. So we've built a machine vision system that helps aim where that auger dumps the, the corn. So shall we hop on? Please. Let's do it. All right. But it's more of a climb than a hop. This machine towers over the both of us and the ladder feels at least a few stories tall. And why don't I let you jump in the driver's seat? Here? Ooh. Thank you. We are sitting now in the cab, the operator station. This vehicle has uh, 17,000 parts. <laughs> and all of those 17,000 parts have to work in synchrony to essentially create what we refer to as a factory on wheels. Up inside the combine, I'm able to get a better sense of how it works. He describes how AI talks to mechanical systems in real time to make sure the harvest, in this case corn kernels, isn't damaged. It's also recording the crop's quality and yield. And it provides farmers with a report card, so to speak, called a yield map that allows them to assess their performance. In the 90s, we talked about one meter accuracy. In the 2000s, we would talk, uh, you know, a few inches. We are now at a point where the accuracy of our GPS solutions is less than one inch 99% of the time. Which matters when you're placing something as small as a seed. It matters a ton, and actually, um, if you put two seeds next to each other, but you put them too close to each other, they begin to compete for nutrients right away. If you space them apart just enough, then each one kind of gets their own little ground and they grow the most healthy. A common misperception of farmers is that they reject new technology or their late adopters, but he says that's far from true. After all, farmers accepted self-driving technology much earlier than the rest of us. But they do have what he calls a show-me culture. They need to know these tools work and will work for them on their land and for their crops. Let's say there's a farmer that um, farms a, a thousand acres, just to make it a round number. What you see farmers do is test out technologies in small portions of their farm. So they'll say, hey, I'm going to take this small field that I have and try this out for this year and see if it scales. They don't just do that with equipment. They do that also with seeds and with chemicals and even new agronomic practices. So they want to understand how that a new practice or a new technology would scale across their operation. He believes AI on the farm through the lens of data analytics, has arrived at scale. But we're still just getting started with machine vision and other forms of AI. Right now, 
the machine reactively makes decisions based on what it ingests and it optimizes itself based on what's inside of it. As we look toward the future with more machine vision capabilities, the plan is to begin to look ahead of the machine with cameras and be able to predict what's ahead of it. So you can actually, for example, measure the height of the crop ahead of the machine and the machine can almost begin to configure itself proactively. Another way to do this is through satellites. That information can be then transferred to the machine via the operations center, and now the machine has knowledge of what that satellite saw and again can begin to proactively configure itself before it actually gets to the crop. We believe that persistent and reliable connectivity is critical to agriculture. It's not just moving data off the vehicle, it allows them to have access to data that could be moved from other places into the vehicle so that they become more intelligent in real time. Right, so that if you have multiple pieces of equipment, they can essentially talk to each other. Exactly, exactly. After the break, plants that have been genetically modified to communicate their needs by giving off new forms of light that can be seen from outer space. You can find links to our reporting in the show notes, and you can support our journalism by going to techreview.com slash subscribe. We'll be back right after this. We're mining soils in a rate that's never been seen before. Those soils took thousands of years to develop and they might not be usable in 30 years. And people do not understand that. So we gotta do something. And it's likely technology and a win-win that's gonna save it, right? You have to make farmers more productive, more profitable, more sustainable. You can't take anything away. So you have to develop essentially complicated solutions that give them an easy workaround. I'm Shelly Aronov. I'm the CEO and founder of Innerplant. We create crops that can communicate what they need. So let's start at the beginning, actually. We use 250 billion worth of chemicals every year, fertilizers, pesticides. At least 30% of those are misapplied, overapplied. At the same time, we lose 20% of potential yields to pathogens. So we have an inefficient system, and the reason it happens is because farming is really large, right? An average farm is probably the size of San Francisco, and it's impossible to find problems at the right time. So what farmers do is they hedge their bets, they apply chemicals in advance on entire fields, and the data clearly shows that that doesn't give you better results. It just gives you more chemicals. So what we do is we enable crops to tell the farmers what they need. This is achieved by genetically engineering plants to give clear signals about what's wrong with them. So it starts with the plant itself. Plants already react natively to stress. So people think that plants are just stuck and do nothing. They're super active in their environment because they're stuck and they can't move. So for example, if a plant is eaten by insects, it will actually start producing a new compound in its leaves to make it taste bad. Or if it doesn't have enough nitrogen, it's going to start mobilizing its roots to be able to capture more nitrogen from the soil. All these things happen very early on and they're different reactions. And we know them very well because people have been studying them for a long time. But they're all on the biological level, so you can't see them. What we do is we code the plants as they're reacting to that native stress, they're gonna start producing a new protein that signals optically from the leaves. There is a problem. I'm attacked by insects, I have fungal pressure, I need more water. And then we use sunlight, optical equipment, and algorithms to be able to see those signals from anywhere from satellite imagery and as close as you know, a tractor sensor in the field. 
And this is how it works. What we do is we go in, we take that piece of DNA, and we add something to it. We add the fluorescent protein. And then what happens is that when the plant starts activating that piece of DNA, it's going to start producing the new fluorescent protein that we taught him how to make. So that's really it, right? And then it's embedded in the plant. So in the next generation, they already have this line of code, and they just know that when they're responding to stress, they're going to start producing this new protein. And also, when the stress goes away, the protein stops, which means you have a signal that's on and off, and you know when problems are resolved. What she's talking about is called solar-induced fluorescence. It was discovered about two centuries ago by a Scottish preacher who figured out that when sunlight hits a green alcoholic extract of laurel leaves, it brings out a bright red light. It's part of the photosynthesis process, but not something the human eye can usually see without help. And the reason that's important is because if you just need the sunlight, then you can do it from satellite imagery, right? If you need another light source, then you're going to have to be closer to the ground, and it's not scalable. And if you want to cover oceans and the entire globe and large agriculture land, you need that. Before she got into the agricultural business, she was in the food business. An Israeli-style hummus brand in the Bay Area. And at the peak of that, we're selling at about 300 stores. And then I had my first daughter, and I thought, I want to do more with life. I want to make an impact. I want to do something that matters. I really want to work with agriculture. I love food, but I wanted to go back to where things start and where a lot of impact could be done. Do you want to see the demo? What you'll see is if you put on the glasses. Okay. And I'm putting on <laughs> with headphones. Feels like sunglasses I'm putting on here. Oh, you kind of are. So basically what you'll see is we have two kind of plants here. These are the regular plants and these are the sensor plants. Oh, wow. Exactly. So they really glow. And here, if you think about it, the laser and the, and the glasses are because we can't use sunlight inside. But outside, we use something very different. So when, when the sunlight comes to the plants and then when it's reflected back, it just has the spectral resolution. It's very distinct because of the gaps in the atmosphere. And then the new light that you're seeing, the fluorescence, just looks different. So you can run a regression model to disentangle them. So this would be your algorithm is the glasses and the laser is the sun. Just when we're inside. <laughs> and I visited their lab in Northern California to see the real plants and learn more about how they work. First time you had to put goggles on for a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> no, uh, actually. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rod Kumimoto. I'm a CSO and co-founder of Interplant. So this is where we have our controlled environment chambers where we grow all of our plants, or most of our plants that aren't in the greenhouse anyway. Unlike the sprouts we saw a few moments ago in a Petri dish, these are full-size vegetable plants in containers. So we can now tie a specific optical signal the plants make to a specific stress. So we'll know that if the plant fluoresces green, it has been attacked by a fungus. And if it fluoresces yellow, it's been attacked by an insect. And so a farmer can now know based on data that we collect what problems they have in the field and where. He shows me three tomato plants that all look the same. But if I give you a pair of laser safety glasses that blocks this blue light to your eye, so if you put those glasses on, start with the, the control plant, the one that's non-fluorescing. You shouldn't see anything there, maybe a little bit. So the, the chlorophyll fluoresces, so you can see a little bit of the red from the chlorophyll. Uh, it has to do with the nature of the filters that you have on your eyes right now. So the green one, you should see just that little bit of red background, maybe. Uh -huh. But on this guy, which uh, has the, uh, yeah. you should see a bright yellow mm -hmm. 
fluorescence there. Now, if you're in a field and your piece of equipment's going by, you can see, oh, this guy, this one has the problem and I can treat just in the places where I have the problem and skip the guys that do not. First, he needs to understand the way a plant responds to problems. One way to do this is by grinding up infected plants and comparing their gene expression levels to healthy plants. As the stressed plants will have turned on a bunch of genes that help combat the problem. And once they know what those genes are, they can add their color signal onto that process. We allowed to walk in? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go in here. There's no, no, no pathogens or anything in this, or at least we try to keep the pathogens down. There are no, no intentional pathogens in this, uh, in this grow chamber. So we have tomatoes, rice and soybeans in here right now. So we're developing sensors for all of these. If they come in here, we grow them in here, we do the tests in the lab, and then the best performing ones go out into the field. Well, that's the sort of dirty side of the lab. That's where we grow the plants in the soil. This is where we grow the plants in tissue culture. So this is a more, we'll call it sterile, but it's a cleaner yeah. environment. So here's where they do the actual integration of the genes into the into the plant and so we need to keep these guys sterile because they grow in these tissue culture environments until they're big enough to be moved over into soil they are generating the plants they start from like little tiny clusters of cells and then through different uh, manipulations of media so i have this little cup here with uh, plants that they grow up. Some of the plants that are non-edited or non-changed or transgenic, they turn white, they don't live. But the ones that are starting to turn green, those are the ones that will make it through. So they're in these little sterile cups. So all this stuff in here is sterile. We don't like that to get the soil in here. Uh, not until we can move across the way. And then we take them across the hall and then we put them in dirt and then eventually take them out to the greenhouse where we can collect seeds. And then the next generation, we can start doing our tests. We do two detections currently, so two different colors, and then we can do up to five. Once again, Shelly Aronoff. And the idea is to get to the point where we can tell farmers everything they need in one seed. So fungal, insect pressure, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. And the plan is to do this at scale. The technology is embedded in the seeds, right? When the farmers plant seeds, they're harvesting data, and they don't need to do anything else. It's just a line of code in the seeds. So every single plant in the field is emitting this information. It's a living sensor. And then the idea is first solid imagery, because we want to make sure that we can cover the globe really cost effectively. And we're talking two and a half acre pixel size. So we can look really, really small and start seeing an infestation in the early days, for example, if it's fungi. So this is the starting point. We call that the scouting tool. But then once you get into the field, right, we're talking about the OEMs and the tractors, then you have another opportunity because you already know you have a problem, but you have equipment now that can literally look at every individual plant and give it just what it needs. Right? So in the really a few years into the future, we can go out to the field and scan every plant, knowing, for example, there's a nitrogen stress somewhere, but then still look at every individual plant and only give the plants that need nitrogen, nitrogen, and the plants that are healthy for whatever reasons, those can just be left alone. And that will be, I believe, the most efficient way we'll ever farm. This mini-series on satellites and farming was reported and produced by me, Anthony Green, and Emma Silicons. It was edited by Matt Honan, and our mix engineer is Garrett Lang. 
with original music by Garrett Lang and Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Jennifer Strong. This is MIT Technology Review.